The reading of God's word is taken from Philippians chapter 3. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And I need to make a cup of, well, a correction. Uh, whatever you see on the, in the bulletin that has the outline in it, forget it. Uh, since the time I gave that to Diane and this morning at this hour, I've changed my mind. Uh, I'm going to have a different outline. It's, it's the, still the same passage, although it's only verses 1 through 16, not 17. Uh, so just keep that in mind, and I'll make it very clear. I trust that uh, you'll be able to get, grasp the outline because it's real simple, okay? Philippians chapter 3. We're going to begin at verse 1, even though we've looked at the first three verses last week. But it will help us to see the, the uh, flow here of what Paul is saying to the Philippian church and by God's blessing to us who are a part of the church here this morning. Chapter three, verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. 
This is the word of the Lord. I have gotten to the point where I enjoy reading biographies. I used to not care much about history at all. And uh, as I get older, I've become more aware of how important history is. And uh, it's important for you and for me as God's people to, to understand the past for one reason, because so many people today are either forgetting the past or they're rewriting it. And that's a very, very dangerous way to proceed with life in general, but certainly in the Christian life. But biographies are what are the part of history that I'm particularly interested in. And in this case, uh, what you and I are reading today is an autobiography of sorts. It is Paul's explanation of how he got to be where he is as a believer in Christ and how he anticipates what's coming. All of this, of course, uh, can be explained in greater detail in specifics in Paul's life if you go back to the book of Acts and read about his conversion on the Damascus Road when Christ met him there and Paul was instantly transformed to, to transfer his trust from himself to Christ. And Paul explains that. In Acts 22 and in other places, Paul reminds everyone of what kind of person he was and what happened to him and what kind of person he is. And that's what he's doing here. And the reason he's doing it is because of what he said in the first three verses. He was concerned that false teachers were cropping up in Philippi and likely to infiltrate the church if they don't watch out carefully for such. These false teachers were saying something that was contrary to the, the pure gospel of Christ. It wasn't a kind of an aberration of the Christian faith. It wasn't something that would even be deemed secondary. It was a primary issue. It was, in a sense, the most fundamental issue of the Christian faith, the gospel. And it's amazing how people can get that wrong. In fact, they always will get it wrong unless the Lord does to us what he did to the Apostle Paul. Not in the same way, of course, but the same basic things. And that's what I want us to look at here very simply is how Paul was transformed by the gospel. And if Paul can be transformed by the gospel, you and I can be transformed by the gospel. Now, simple outline. The old life, verses four through six, the old life. The changed life, verses seven through 11. And the new life, verses 12 through 16. The old life, the changed life, the new life. I like simplicity. And this is not an easy passage to, to break down <clears throat> and explain without just <clears throat> going through every little phrase and we're not, we can't do that today. So that's why I struggle with it. I've, been, I've preached through this a number of times through the years, but I'm telling you that I didn't know it was gonna be this way actually. The longer I preach, the harder it is to preach. Now you wouldn't think it'd be that way. 
You'd think it'd be, oh, he's been preaching for 50 years. He, he ought not to have any problem. Just stand up there and almost, you know, put it on cruise control. Doesn't work that way. I look at my sermons that I've preached in the past and I go, ah. And I see new things that I didn't see before. And I see, see more accurate ways. Not, not that I pre- what I preached I hope was inaccurate, but I, I see better ways to make it plain and, and clearer to us. That's the struggle of the preacher, how to take that word of God and make it plain and clear to all of us. So as I preach to you, like I always try to do, I preach to myself, okay? So let's look at the first part there, the old life, verses four through six. The issue here is one of confidence, not a worldly kind of confidence where you, you know, kind of stoke yourself and work yourself into saying, I really feel that I can do anything. And that's what the world tells us. You can do anything. And they leave God out of the picture. The issue, though, is confidence before God versus confidence in oneself or confidence as the world would see it. And Paul just mentioned that in verse three. If anybody has reason to be confident in the flesh, it's me. We put no confidence in the flesh as believers in Christ. By the flesh, he just means our efforts or our status, trusting in our own abilities, confidence in the flesh. Paul said, now look, if anybody could have confidence in the flesh, It was me. And he's not bragging on himself because he's setting himself up here to show how ridiculous that is. Why would Paul say, if anybody could have confidence in the flesh, I could? It's because life can appear to be spiritually good on the outside. We can give the impression that we are about as spiritual as anybody could be by the things that we say or do. And those things aren't, uh, aren't unimportant, but that's getting the cart before the horse, as we like to say. So what was the reasons that Paul was confidence, had confidence in himself? Well, I think the simple way to put it is he had a pedigree, he had purity, and he had passion. He had the pedigree, because of his Jewish background. He outlines all of this in verse, beginning of verse four in the middle of the chapter. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse five. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Remember he just talked about the false view and saying we're the true circumcision. The false view was saying you've got to believe in Jesus and submit to the Jewish rites, including circumcision. And Paul says, we're the true circumcision. We have, we're the circumcision of the heart. God has done an operation on our hearts. That's what circumcision was designed to point to. But Paul wants to mention that one first. I was circumcised just like a good Jew would be. I was circumcised on day eight, not day seven, not day nine, because day eight was the prescribed day in God's law. And so that's what I was submitted to by my parents, Jewish parents. And then he says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, that was a pretty good thing to be able to say as a Jew. Some of the tribes were better than others. 
And Benjamin was a, one of the two tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it was from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, that the first king would come. The king for whom Paul had been named, Saul. You remember he was, he was Saul before he was converted and his name was changed to Paul. And then he says, not only that, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I have got this fabulous spiritual pedigree. As to the law, and now he talks about his passion. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Excuse me, his purity. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. And what he's saying is, not only was I a Jew, but I was a Pharisaical Jew. And remember, a Pharisee in and of himself was not necessarily a bad thing. The Pharisees were the ones who were sticklers for the law of God. They were very concerned about keeping every law. And of course, over time, they became more concerned about that than they did about what the law was designed to tell us about our sin and about Christ's provision. But Paul wasn't there. Paul, not yet. Paul was thinking that, you know, I've got to be, I've got to keep God's commandments. And if I keep God's commandments, I'm going to be pleasing to God and God's going to accept me because I'm a, I'm a part of the people of God. I'm a part of the Old Testament covenant church. I'm a, I'm a Jew. I'm a Hebrew. Abraham, descendant of Abraham. All of these things he's saying uh, to show that uh, he was the one who had reason to be confident in himself, in his flesh. And so as a Pharisee, he was keeping all of God's laws or seeking to keep it as purely and as faithfully as he could. He sincerely believed that that was what God wanted and what would be pleasing to God. And not only that, but as you see at the end there, his passion in verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He believed that, like all of the Pharisees, he believed that the church was the enemy. Because they were saying that Christ has fulfilled the law. They were saying that, that uh, the Messiah, Christians were saying that the Messiah had come. And the Jews saw them as opponents, the Pharisees in particular. And so, at, because they were the enemies of God in the eyes of people like Paul, Paul was going about persecuting the church. Truly believing he was doing the right thing. You see, you can have a zeal it's not necessarily good. And that's what he's about to tell us. So all of this pedigree, all of this purity, all of this passion that Paul had bottled up in him and he was, he was seeking to, to really be a, a go-getter when it comes to being a faithful Pharisee. Now we have to remember and ask ourselves, could I be as impressive as Paul, in my life outside of Christ? Just outwardly. You know, what Paul was doing in many respects was good, not the persecuting the church part, but keeping God's law, respecting God's law, teaching God's law. Nothing wrong with God's law. Nothing wrong with doing that. 
But what was, what was your motive? Where was your confidence? Where's my, our confidence before Christ came into our lives? Well, whatever the details, our confidence was not in Christ, was it? It was in ourselves. Yes, I believe I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. I try to do what's right. I believe in the Ten Commandments. I believe in the Golden Rule and so on. But our hearts aren't changed. Yes, I, believe, I, I think I'm going to heaven because I'm a faithful church member. I believe I'm a good person because uh, I've been a good husband, I've been a good father, I've, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and of course they would always say I certainly haven't been perfect, but I've been you know, generally good. Nothing wrong as such with that again. But where was our confidence? You know, if we come to know Christ, we come to realize that. Now, that's the old life. And we can look at Paul specifically, but we can broaden that out and just say, everybody's in that boat in that they're, you're either trusting in Christ or you're trusting in something else. Basically yourself. And Paul is pointing out, this is where I was, and it was wrong. And so that brings us to the new life. I mean, the changed life, excuse me. Verses 7 through 11. The changed life. <clears throat> Notice in verse 7 that Paul begins that verse by, with the word, but. <clears throat> this, is, this is one of a number of times where Paul explains the gospel like he did to the Ephesians and to the Romans, where he says, you know, we were sinners, but Christ changed us. And that's what Paul is saying about himself now. This is his spiritual autobiography. That's the way I was living my whole life. But I encountered Christ and a changed life began to take place. And it began by him realizing, by him realizing that he was a failure before God. In the eyes of the world, oh, there's, there's Paul, the great Pharisee. He was taught by Gamaliel, the greatest of rabbinic scholars. He's got a pedigree and a resume that, that would blow any of us out of the water. Paul says, that wasn't good enough. I came to realize that I was a failure. And he does this in, in um, kind of like a, a ledger set up. Profit and loss. Whatever was gained, I counted as loss. Look at the language he uses here for the next couple of verses. Verse uh, 7. <clears throat> Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And keep looking. Indeed, I count everything as loss <clears throat> because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, this, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them. See these uh, terms that he's using, uh, like a banker's term or an accountant's terminology. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Profit and loss. Credits, debits. Everything that he thought went on the debit side of the ledger was actually a 
debt uh, on the credit side of the ledger was actually a debit. He was actually incurring more and more wrath against God because his obedience was outward only and not from the heart. Profit and loss, misplaced confidence. The hymn says, uh, in uh, one of our hymns that we like to sing, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, think of Paul, could my zeal no respite, no. In other words, could I just never stop in all of my, my zealous activities for the Lord? Could my zeal no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. None of those things could atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's what Paul is really saying here. He didn't know that hymn, by the way. But it does match. Uh, any true Christian understands that. And so Paul is saying here, not only were these things lost, but he says, I consider them rubbish. Now, the translators here in the ESV are awfully nice in using that term. It's a mild version of a term that could have been used more powerfully. It could be garbage. It could be excrement. That term is translated in ways like that. It's not <clears throat> unlike what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 64. All of our righteousness, so-called, is as filthy rags. All of the good stuff and efforts to be spiritual, whatever religion we choose or whether we just go say I'm an agnostic or an atheist and I'm just going out there and doing my own thing, it's still coming down to the same thing. Garbage, excrement compared to, look at what he says, compared to knowing Christ. Again, those things are not necessarily bad in themselves, but if, if our faith is in the wrong thing, it's useless. It's, it's a, an awful thing in the sight of a holy God. We need a righteousness that will enable us to stand before God and know that God will accept us in spite of all of our terrible uh, actions and thoughts and words, in spite of all of our efforts to be good. Romans 3, verse 10, there is none righteous. No one is righteous in the sight of God. The Pharisees were righteous in the sight of man and in the sight of their own selves, but not in the sight of God. The only way that we can obtain a right standing with God, Paul goes on to say here, is through faith alone in Christ alone as our righteousness. You see how he puts it in verse 8? Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing, it's another profit and loss type thing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
on the 31st of this month, we remember it as Reformation Day, when Martin Luther began, so, began the real movement of, of the Protestant Reformation. That was simply a return to the biblical gospel, that we are declared righteous in God's sight, not by how much money we give to the church, not by how good we are in the sight of others, any of those things, but only for the righteousness of Christ, the Holy One, the perfect sinless one who died in our place so that we can give him our sin and our guilt and he will receive it and he will give us in turn his righteousness that he earned for us through his life and death and resurrection. And then we can have confidence that we can stand before God and know that God will accept us for Jesus' sake because of him and not because of us. And that's what Paul is saying here. Romans 3, I was just quoting, it goes on to say in verse 21 and verse 22, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, all who believe, Whoever you are, whatever your situation has been, whatever your past, the righteousness of God is what you need, is what I need. And we can have it by faith in Christ. And that's what Paul was discovering here. He, he talks about this, new, uh, this changed life in terms of knowing God. You see in verse 10 where he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And earlier in verse 8, he said, he spoke of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what Paul wanted. Not a knowledge merely about God or about Christ, but a knowledge, a personal relationship knowledge of God. You know how we do that. Oh yeah, I know Joe, but I don't know him well. We've never sat down and had long talks together and come to understand what each other's life is like and all of that. <clears throat> so in thinking about our relationship to God, it has to be one-on-one, -on -one, personal, intimate, deep, growing. One of the greatest books written about these things was a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Uh, I hope, I know some of you have read it and studied it. If you, if you have, read it again and study it again. You can't read that too much. It's so rich, you probably have to read it over and over again to, to get it all. But if you've never read it, please do so. It's a fantastic book. Uh, to take you deeper into what it means to know God. <coughs> we want to know God. We, and he says, <laughs> he says here, I want to experience the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings and become like him in his death that I may by any means possible attain the resurrection from the dead. And so it's, it's a knowing of, of what it is to experience and live out 
the power of God in us. God's power not only saves us, God's power transforms us. The power of his resurrection, looking ahead to the suffering, I mean, experiencing his sufferings and, and <clears throat> becoming like him in his death. That is, Jesus is giving himself fully <coughs> for our sakes. <coughs> Dying for us. And we give ourselves fully to Christ. No holding back. The last thing to note, the new life. This new life is, is not static. It is growing. We are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Second Peter 3 tells us. And he put it that way uh, in, <coughs> excuse me, He put it that way in the language he was using, that these are things he continues to do, and he especially stresses that in the last verses that we read. He goes on to say <clears throat> concerning this new life, it will never be a perfect life in this life. <clears throat> He's very clear to say, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, and the word perfect there means mature. He didn't even see himself as, a, as, as achieving <coughs> a, a level of maturity that he needed. <coughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> Can you imagine the Apostle Paul? Great a man as he was, now, having been a believer for a couple of decades, imagine him saying, I haven't arrived yet. What does that tell us about us? Is there not some subtle way that you and I can begin to slack off and to sort of go, almost not go into cruise control so much, but really not to, to, as he's going to say, press on in our Christian life. Do we get to a point to where we sometimes think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty holy. I, we wouldn't say it quite like that. Thank you, brother. We wouldn't say it quite like that. We wouldn't say so bluntly and so boldly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty holy guy. But deep down in our subconscious, I think sometimes we feel that way. And we have to guard against that. Because look at Paul. You know, other places where Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. All right. So Paul won't be perfect. And he wants to make that absolutely clear here. I haven't arrived. What does he do, though? <coughs> There's an important word here. Press on. He uses it twice. Verse 12. But I press on to make it my own. Just because Christ Jesus had made me his own. 
Verse 14, I press on toward the goal. He's using the language of a runner here. Uh, that, you know, the Olympics were in everybody's thoughts in Greece uh, because that's where they began. And Philippi was a part of that area. And so he says, imagine yourself a runner. A runner, and if he's in the race, he's going to pursue the goal. And that's really the word here. Press on is probably not as good as uh, the word pursue because pursue gives us a little bit clearer picture. The word pursue it means to pursue with a, 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 a really great zeal. You see, Paul's zeal has been totally done. It's done a 180, as we say. He used to be zealous in pursuing uh, Christians. He said that in Acts 22. He used the same word. I was pursuing uh, Christians so that I could persecute and kill them. Today, there are other religions that are doing the same thing. <clears throat> but now he says, I'm in a race. I'm in a race, and my goal is to pursue victory, to pursue that goal of winning the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a glorious thing to think about? And he says, I'm not going to look back. You know, forgetting the past. It's not that he doesn't remember the past, but he doesn't dwell on the past. He doesn't continuously uh, you know, moan and bemoan the fact that he was a terrible person before. He knows that. But his goal is not to look back. A runner doesn't do himself any favors, does he, by looking back at those behind him. I saw some of them do that in some of the races in the Olympics. And I'm thinking, I didn't think that was the right way to go. I don't know all there is to know about those things, but they would look back sometimes. Uh, seems strange to me. Don't look back. Don't, you know, only reason you should look back is to do it with a sense of wonder and gratitude that God saved a person like you and me. And so he pursues. There's a luxury car brand that has had, I don't know if it still does, but it has had as its slogan, the relentless pursuit of perfection. Now, I, I don't have one of those cars. Well, maybe it was a 1985 version. But, but that's a great statement to describe the Christian. The relentless pursuit of perfection. Will we be perfect in this life? No, we know that. But we pursue it because we are going to be perfect at the resurrection, which he's talking about ultimately here. That's the goal. The prize is the, is the resurrection. When everything is finished. Now, we don't hold back. You see, we don't say, ah, I'm going to heaven so I can slack off. No, the very opposite happens if God's grace is working in your heart. He's going to make you want to pursue. Jerry Bridges has this great book. The Pursuit of Holiness. Great title. And it comes right out of Hebrews 12. Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. He, that's what he's talking about here. He had been talking about justification, a righteousness from God by faith. And now he's talking about sanctification with the end goal of glorification. Paul's he's got it all here. 
in these few verses. Well, with that in mind, keep in mind that Paul says something here about this pursuit. He says, one thing. I forget the past and there's one thing that I do. You know, it would, it's a sign of somebody who's really uh, got his life in order when he or she can say, I have one overarching purpose and goal in life. And basically it's the same for all of us, isn't it? Glorify God, enjoy him forever. Pursue Christ, know Christ more and more. And you can do that as you grow in your faith. And people today who say, I don't know what my purpose in life is. I'm lost. I'm just drifting from here to there. And so in doing that, they settle. They settle for lesser things to make them happy or to keep them busy. C.S. Lewis said in his book, one of his books, The Weight of Glory, he said, we are far too easily pleased. We settle. We settle for lesser goals. Make more money. Um, look better than somebody else. When the great goal that will, it's the only thing that will satisfy our hearts is to the pursuit of Christ. The only thing. You will be disappointed in life if the one thing that, that rules your life, that you're aiming for, is not Christ. That's what Paul is telling us here. This is the pattern for all believers, and that's how the passage ends in verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. There's that word mature again. Uh, same word that he used for perfect earlier. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. I love that. It's a nice way of saying, if you hadn't gotten this straightened out yet, God will take care of that in time. Because we are all at different levels of maturity. And he ends by saying, only let us hold true to what we have attained. To hold true means to keep pace. Another uh, term for running. Keep the pace going. Keep your pace. Now, I just want to impress upon all of us, myself included, that we need an, an intensity and an intentionality to our lives as Christians. We need to pursue holiness. How well are we doing that? We can come, become too settled, too comfortable. And I'm not saying, you know, stop spending time with your children or uh, read your Bible uh, at, uh, while you're at work. I'm not saying things like that. But there are ways for us to examine ourselves and see how well am I actually pursuing Christ in my life. If you do that, and work towards that, God is going to enable you to rejoice more than you ever have in the great salvation that is yours. And he's going to be glorified more in your life. 
Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us realize that we are in these words that Paul has written. The details, of course, are different, but the substance is the same. We pray that you would help us to be thankful that our old life is no longer, that we are new creations in Christ, that you would help us to ever remember the gospel and how you changed us, how you began changing us. And Lord, to faithfully serve you in the new life that we have with Christ. We pray, Lord, that in all things we would depend on him and grow to know him, love him, serve him more and more with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.